0: As I mentioned, today I have the privilege of being able to wrap up and conclude this series that we've been calling The Art of Neighboring. And truth be told, um, this has been a really important series in the life of North Cross because of the times and the circumstances in which we're living right now. One of the things that you've heard us talk a lot about at North Cross over the last number of weeks and even months is that because of all that's going on that's been different in our lives, that the thing that maybe you've noticed quite a bit are feelings and emotions kind of rising up in your heart and maybe even in your mind. And I think the thing that we've been talking about is how easily those emotions can lead you to places where you don't want to be That the feelings of anger or sadness or frustration can show themselves in actions and activities that we know aren't right and in worry and all that kind of stuff. And so what we've been talking about is the importance of realigning those emotions with God's promises and God's truth. And, And that's been a theme we've been talking about for months now. But I don't know if you're anything like me, but... When you see things on the news that make you upset, when you hear things that people are saying or tweeting or posting that make you sad or frustrated, part of it is realigning our emotions. But at times, I guess I've asked myself a really important question that at times I've felt a little bit helpless with. The question is this. What can I do? Have you ever asked yourself that question over the last months or even weeks? Where you see something that makes you upset, you feel something inside of you, and then most of the time when we naturally ask ourselves this question, we find ourselves at a loss as to what we can actually do. So here's what happens. We get angry We might even think about throwing something at the screen and then we do nothing. We have an argument with someone online or over the phone. We get sad. We get frustrated. We wonder what we can do and then we do nothing. Or at least it feels that way. And in some ways, I guess I get that because I've felt it too, and there are certain things that we just can't do anything about. I don't have a lot of sway when it comes to certain policies or legislation. I don't have any power in making our politicians get along better so that they work for the good of the people and not the good of their election or re-election or whatever it might be. I have no power to do anything about a COVID-19 vaccine. Like, Like, I can't do anything about that. Those things, my hands are tied. But here's what I want you in the room and online to know. Don't ever convince yourself that there's nothing you can do. Because there is something we can do to make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our places of work. There is always something we can do. And that's the idea behind this series. That's why I think it's so important because we have a country filled with people who are frustrated wondering what they can do and this series is all about what you can do. And it's not finding the right neighbor or a good neighbor. This series is all about Being a good neighbor. And what does that look like? And how do we do it? Today, I I get to wrap up this series with hopefully inspiring you to understand why this is so important, why being a good neighbor is so important, because sometimes we, we have. Series all year, right? And so sometimes we wonder which ones are the most important. And, and sometimes the life of being a Christian is something that can get a little bit complicated. And there's so many different options. There's so many things we're being told to do. Let me just tell you this. This series is not just something on the periphery of being a Christian. That we might be using different verbiage or language. But in terms of this series, being a good neighbor is at the heart of who God called you to be. Is at the center of the purpose which God has given to you. So, inspired yet? We'll see. Here's here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with a passage that is so key to God's direction for Christians, and it's something Jesus said on the night before he died. We probably have more record of that evening in Jesus' life, the night before he died, Monday Thursday, than maybe any other point in Jesus' life. And here's why. There was a lot of important things that Jesus did that evening as he washed the disciples' feet, as he instituted communion. There's also a lot of important things that he said. Jesus knew that within the next day, things were totally going to change for the 12 disciples in that room that evening and he wanted to share with them the most important things. One of the things he said has all to do with what Christians should do and what a Christian should look like. It comes from John chapter 13. John was one of Jesus' disciples in the room that night and here's what he recorded Jesus saying that evening. He said in verse 35, By this, by what I'm going to tell you, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That means a follower. There's something that people will do that will show them to be followers of Jesus, if you. You know, um, there are certain things that you can recognize just by a symbol or by an action, um, for instance, Ryan, um, if you can get a close-up on these shoes, it doesn't uh, say anywhere on my shoes what brand it is, but whether you're online or if you can see it in the room, there's three stripes on it, and so everyone knows that these shoes, just by the symbol, are what kind? Adidas. I think I, I think I heard it. Or, or how about by actions? You can tell who a person is in some way by actions. Um... Ryan, you're going to have to answer this one. So who am I if I go like this and yell "School"? A Viking fan, exactly. Just by your actions, you can tell who someone is sometimes, right? Jesus is saying that that's true about being a Christian too. And I wonder how you might fill this in when Jesus is describing what a Christian would look like He says, here's how you know that you are really my disciple if you go to church every Sunday. I wonder if online counts. I think that for a time, for all of us, this is something maybe we've thought, and we know it's bigger than that, but as long as someone goes to church on a Sunday, that's a Christian. That's not what Jesus said. Um, or, Or maybe it's if you have the books of the Bible memorized in order and are able to correctly pronounce. I'm waiting. Yeah, I heard it. Habakkuk and Haggai. It's kind of kind of fun to say Habakkuk, you know, in social distancing times. You don't want to say it too much because you might have a little bit of a spit come out, but uh, that's not what Jesus said. In 21st century America, maybe we might think that you're really my disciple if you... Vote Republican. Then you'll know that you're on the right side. But other of us are like, no way. It's, it's if you vote Democrat. That's not what Jesus said, is it? If you're online this morning, I want you, and if you're sitting by someone today, a family member, I want you to just share with the person next to you, what do you think Jesus said next. Go ahead, take uh, five seconds. What do you think Jesus said? Well, let's see. If you are really my disciples, if you love one another. Of all the things Jesus could have chosen, and there is more to the Christian life, there's more to following Jesus, and belief is important. That's where Our relationship with Jesus begins is with our faith relationship with him. But when it comes to signs and symbols of what it looks like to be a Christian, it's not three stripes. It's not putting our hands together and yelling skull. It's love and compassion. And people who think of others more than they think of themselves. And people who carve out time in their busy schedules to care for other people, even when they've got a lot to do. (laughs) Our first fill-in goes like this. Christians are to be recognized by their love. That's their brand recognition, love. So here's the difficult question, Christians. If you're not a Christian yet, I hope you will be, but this question isn't for you necessarily to to think internally about, although you'll probably have an answer to it, you'll have an opinion. How how are we doing with this? When it comes to 21st century America, would you say that when someone sees someone loving, that they're like, that's gotta be a Christian? Or when people hear the word Christian or Jesus follower, they right away think that's someone who has a deep compassion and love for other people. How are we doing? I think it's complicated, isn't it? I think we have a lot of people who are very well-intentioned. And I think it's difficult in 21st century America. I mean, there are certain people who just naturally have a bias of difficulty against anyone who would believe in a God or follow Jesus as their Savior. That makes it difficult, the way people view Christians. I, I think that... Um, There are certain people in our culture who think that um, even when a Christian shares truth in love, that if it doesn't go with what cultural norms are, that they'll call that being judgmental or unloving. And it may not necessarily be that. We, We know that. So this is difficult, but... If you're someone who follows Jesus, I think here's the question that we personally need to ask. It's this, even with all the cultural norms out there and the things we're fighting up against maybe as Christians, could we do better? Are there ways individually or collectively or as a church that we could be about the brand recognition that Jesus had for us? Could we do better when it comes to showing love and being love? And being compassionate and kind. I think the answer to that, I know the answer to that is yes. And one of the guys in the room that night that heard Jesus say what the, the sign or symbol would be of what a, a, you'll know Christians by their love, was that na- man named John that I mentioned earlier. And years later, he wrote some letters to churches that kind of expounded a little bit more on what he came to learn and what he came to believe. And in those letters, at least in one area, he gave us something that I think can be helpful for us if we find ourselves not loving our neighbor the way we could. He gives us a whole new view of how to view the people around us. 1 John chapter 3. This is a letter by the same guy who wrote the historical account of Jesus that we read from earlier. John says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. And in this little phrase, guess what he's doing? He's hearkening back to that night on Monday Thursday, the night before Jesus died. There was a message that not only they heard, but that when someone would come to faith, that they were sure to emphasize it's simply this we should love one another. Here's how John continues He says, Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, showed himself to be not in faith, not a follower of God, and murdered his brother. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with Cain, let me just give you a really quick background. So there were two sons of Adam and Eve whose names were Cain and Abel. And what we know about them is this, that there was a, a time in their life where Abel gave an offering to God that was done out of true faith and thanksgiving, and it was an acceptable offering to God, And then Cain gave an offering to God and he did it with a selfish heart. I don't know, we don't know what all of his motives necessarily were totally. We're gonna get hinted at one in just a moment, but it was not an offering that was acceptable to God. And so Cain knew that Abel's was and his wasn't. And so what he did is he he ended up killing his brother. What was going on? In Cain, John gives us a little more explanation. He says, Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own actions were evil. He looked at his actions, Cain did, and his brothers were righteous, and he compared them to what his brother did, and there was a gap there, and he felt jealous of his brother, and he was mad at God, but he was also mad at his brother. As he viewed his brother, he viewed him through the eyes of comparison, the eyes of, what about me? And it led him to a really bad place. The opposite of love. He murdered his brother. We're gonna come back to that in a moment, but John continues by fleshing it out a little bit more. He says, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. That's the way it was for first century Christians. They were different First century Christians were countercultural in not just what they believed, but how they lived and how they acted. And so there was a lot of hatred towards Christ followers. I think John's words are very applicable yet today. Don't be surprised if people don't accept you for what you believe. Don't be surprised if people hear the word Christian and they don't always necessarily think the best things. Don't be surprised if people hate you. He continues. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. John's getting back to the theme that we talked about from Jesus, that we don't earn eternal life by loving people, but it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's brand recognition of someone being a Christian, that someone who follows Jesus will love. Anyone who does not love, does not follow Jesus, remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John explains in more detail what Jesus talked about the night before he died. Here's what I I want you to know and see as we think of that example of Cain and Abel. It's our second fill-in for today. That your due is affected by your view. What you do for the people around you is directly affected by how you view the people around you. How you be a good neighbor is directly affected by how you view your neighbor. And let's be honest, so often we find ourselves, because of our sinful natures, with this thing inside of us that views our neighbor kind of like Abel and Cain, like Cain viewed Abel. We, we view them as competition. Or maybe to say it a different way, that we get into this comparison game with other people that frankly leads in no good place. And I think as, as you think about this right away, we need to exclude the people in our immediate family, although even brothers and sisters, I've seen it in my own house, have some of this in them as well. But usually your immediate family, it's pretty easy to be cheerleaders of or some really good friends that you grew up with and man, you just love it when things go well for them. But with so many others, There's this little thing that rises up when we see someone who's skinnier than us or prettier than us or more successful than us or seemingly have the perfect little idyllic family life, you know, or have the right house. There's this feeling, this emotion that we wrestle with inside and in many ways we're embarrassed to even admit it When we see people doing things we wish we were doing, or traveling places we wish we were traveling, or driving things that we wish we could drive, or going places on the weekend we wish we could go. And you're wondering, Ben, how did you know how I think? It's because I deal with the same thing too. This, well, jealousy, this envy, this competition with other people? Instead of celebrating who they are, shouldn't Cain have done that with Abel? Man, Abel, what an amazing offering. You have such great faith and love for God. Brother, great job. I need to do better like you. Instead, he gets jealous and he kills his brother because it was hard for him. It was hard for him because he played that constant comparison game. Cain did it. We do it. But here's the thing. Your do is affected by your view. So can I change your view for a moment? I want you to think about how powerful a change of view is. To do that, um, I want to show you a picture. So this is a picture I took over a decade ago of a stone stairway in the city of Jerusalem. And I can still remember that day we were walking to different places in Jerusalem and um, you're, you're visiting the place where they think that Jesus died and the place where they think that Jesus was buried. And you're just thinking about all these things. There's just all this amazing stuff all around you. And it's just a stone stairway. Didn't think anything of it, stone steps. And then our tour guide took us aside. He said, I want you to look at those steps. He said, they are one of the rare parts of Jerusalem that are still be able to be seen in the daylight, seen um, as being exposed still, not having been destroyed that date back to the first century. That these steps were there just like they see in this picture, are seen in this picture, when Jesus walked on the earth. And here's something else the tour guide said. This would have been the only way, this pathway, to get from the Garden of Gethsemane to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Do you know where the Bible tells us Jesus walked from on Monday, Thursday night? From the Garden of Gethsemane The home of Caiaphas the high priest. Do you know what that means about these steps and these very stones that you're seeing? That Jesus walked on them. Do you see why I took a picture? Thought nothing of it for a moment, was just going to walk by, no picture taken of these steps. But when I was given the backstory, when I was told to pause and just think a little bit, totally changed my view. Took a picture talking about it 10 years later. Your due is changed by your view and when there's a Christ connection to something, man, for a Christian, that's amazing. Listen to where John goes next in his words in the context of loving other people. The next thing he writes is this in verse 16. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And and John is first giving us an example of what love really looks like. But in there, he gives us another treasure as well. Says that Jesus laid down his life for us. We find ourselves at times not feeling good about who we are. We get into this comparison game where Maybe we don't even feel like we're worth it, whatever it is. I want you to know something, that value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for that thing. Can we go back to that last verse? It says that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the... First person plural. It includes the world. It includes me. It includes you. And you online too. Let's go back to the next slide. Value is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for that thing. There was nothing more precious, not a bigger payment that Jesus could give than not just dying, but going to hell so that I wouldn't have to. Experience isolation and separation from the heavenly father so that I will never have to face that, so you will never have to experience. That's the price that Jesus paid for you. I want you to know, I want you to know that you are valuable, that God would give his son and that Jesus would give his life. Now, here's where it gets a little, well, applicable. It's true of you. (laughs) It's also true of the guy who's driving recklessly on the highway that you'd like nothing more than for them to get pulled over and in an accident or something. <laughs> it's true of the guy who has the locker next to you that continues to bother you or that you just don't get along with. It's true of your in-laws. The fact that Jesus gave his life is true for the, for the pizza delivery guy or for the neighbor that never mows his lawn. It's true for all of us. That all of us, just like those steps, have a Christ connection to us. It's that Jesus would give his life for us. You see, number three, everyone is someone for whom Jesus died. Everyone is someone for whom Jesus died. And that's the new view we need to see. That everyone is a precious soul that Jesus paid his life for, for their sins. Verse 16, let's finish out these verses. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And, and that's still a difficult thing to do, but um, maybe with this new view, it's a little more understandable. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You see someone who needs something, you're like, oh man, they need help. I'll pray. But we don't help them with that need? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but let's love in action and in truth. For those of you who are married, who have ever been in a romantic relationship of any time or sort, let me ask this. Um, How well is it gonna go for your relationship if you tell your spouse that you love her, but never show her? That if you tell her that you have love for her or for him, But never forgive him or her or never do anything for him or her. Never buy them a gift on their, even on their birthday. I told you I love you. You don't need anything from me. Let me just say, that's a recipe for not a long relationship, okay? Because you and I, we intuitively know that love is not just seen or heard with words. It is seen in action. And that is what John is saying. And that is what Jesus set up as being important that night before he died. Here's how you'll know that you're someone who follows Jesus. You will love one another. And let me just say this. The first century Christian church was amazing at this. That in fact, people who didn't even buy into the Jesus thing, there is historical evidence of, of historians, secular historians, who would say, wow, um, Those Christians, they're the people that love immensely. In fact, um, here's some words written by a historical, um, uh, by a a gentleman who um, wrote as a secular historian. If we could go to that slide. Next one. He wrote, For the Christians, are distinguished from other men or other people, not by the country that they're from, not by their language, because there's a lot of different languages of Christians, not by the customs they observe. This is how they're observed, by the love that they have. They love all people and are persecuted even by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. Isn't that an amazing example that we've been given from that first century church? They understood what it meant to take Jesus' words to heart and they loved the people around them. Can we go back to that last slide? Here's something that I want you to understand. Um, Our love for people should be greater than our love for being right. And I think that gets to the heart sometimes of what people who come at this objectively have issues with Christians, that it seems like they're all about truth and we should be about truth. But what about the love? And I think for some, our love for people is not greater than our love for, you know, proven we're right. And this doesn't mean we enable people. This doesn't mean that we lower our standards. I'm not talking about that for a moment. God's truth is truth. It's just this. When we interact with people, when we share truth with people, have we laid a foundation of love so that they recognize that this is coming from a good place, a love place, rather than a judgment place? Our love for people should be greater than our love for being Right, so we started with this question. It's the question of what can we do? What can we do? That's what this whole series was about. And as we wrap it up, as we think about, you know, our do being influenced by our view, let me make it very applicable and give you just one very easy application if you take me up on it, we can carry out Christ's calling one neighbor at a time. All of us have neighbors, literal neighbors. Even if we live out on a farm, there's a next farm at some point. That's your neighbor. Here's how I want you to carry this out. We can carry it out one neighbor at a time. So for some of you, this is how you take the feeling of love and make it into an action step. You learn your neighbor's name. Meet that neighbor that you haven't had a chance to meet before. Maybe it's three houses down. Maybe for some of you, it's right across the street. You've seen them, you've waved at them, you've gone into your garage and then out of it again, but you haven't taken the time to... If I asked you what their name was, you wouldn't know. Where do they work? You wouldn't know. That's our first do is just maybe for you, it's to introduce yourself and learn your neighbor's name. The other thing is this, learn your neighbor's story. If you already know their name, the next thing would be to take some time to ask them some questions. You know, there are blessings in the midst of COVID and quarantine and all the challenges we're going through. One of the blessings is that people have been more willing than usual to share how they're feeling, ask them that question. How have you been doing? How are things with your family? How are things at work? Is there any way I can pray for you or be a blessing to you? And it's amazing, so often conversations start with talking about basketball or talking about fantasy football or recipes or whatever it might be, home decorating. And then over time, as we establish that relationship, as we neighbor people, as we be a good neighbor, that there's a foundation that's laid that allows us to talk about things that are even more important. So as we close out this series, let me remind you why all of this is so important. Why would Jesus say, the mark of following me is to love the people around you? It's not on its own or solely so that the people around you have other people who love them. It's because when we love people, and we do it in response to the love we've received from Christ, that when people feel that love, they're gonna wonder why. And they're gonna be curious about this Jesus who's changed our hope to one of confidence for heaven and has changed also the way we live until we get there. See, in all of this, we can do better with our love, right? but it's really not about our love. It's about a love that's much greater that we want our neighbors to see, to realize, and understand the love of a heavenly father who walks with them, who forgives them, who wants to spend eternity with them. So, would you join me as a church to not just talk about love, but to act in love, to not just look for good neighbors, but to be a good neighbor. This isn't optional. This isn't peripheral. This is at the heart of what God has called you and me and this church to do because you know how you identify someone who follows Jesus? It's when we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, like so many things in your word, this is easy to talk about, but so, so hard to do. And Lord, forgive me, forgive us for those times where we haven't shown love the way that we'd like to, and we're going to mess up again. There's no doubt about it, but you have grace and forgiveness and love for that too, for those sins. We thank you. Lord, as as we sort of let all of this just kind of sit in our hearts and in our minds, we're gonna have an opportunity in like five minutes when we leave this room or we go out to work tomorrow or this afternoon and and go out into the neighborhood and just help us not to forget the calling you have on our lives. And we pray that you would open up opportunities for us to love as we do. May people see not a cool neighbor, but an awesome, loving God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.